Obviously, the fear of flooding keeps some of us indoors, but we're the brave few and faithful, I think, as, as Paul said. You know, um, one of the things that we've been thinking about, and, and I heard a new word last week, um, Bapticostal. And I kind of like the word. <laughs> and here's, here's where the word came from. You know, as a church, we get together. What do we get together for? We get together to meet with God. We want the Holy Spirit to be present with us when we meet on Sunday mornings. We want to meet with Him. Uh, when we go to our groups, we want the Holy Spirit to be there. We also want to learn. We believe that God's only real method of communicating to us is the Word. Now, I wouldn't say only. He uses people. He uses the Spirit you know, in us, but it never disagrees with the Word. So we need the Bible. But as we get to know God through the Bible, it should stir our emotions. It should stir our affections for God in Jesus. And so that's kind of our goal Sunday mornings is to capture our affections, to let God capture our affections. So the goal of this whole band is to get out of the way. The goal of my goal is to get out of the way so that we can get to know God and be doctrinally sound on the Bible like a good old Baptist. But we can let our emotions be stirred and our affections for God be stirred like a good Pentecostal. <laughs> so kind of mix them together. It's okay to be intellectual and doctrine and get to know God. And it's also okay to respond in joyful thanksgiving and, and praise and glory to our wonderful God. So feel free to be a good Baptist or a good Pentecostal. Put them together. We're Bapticostal, right? Let me pray. <laughs> Lord Jesus Christ, um, I thank you that we can be free. We're free from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death. We're free from the enslavement to sin. We don't have to sin, yet we know we still struggle with sin while we're in these bodies. We're not perfected yet. Um, and you're still conforming us to your image. So we thank you for your grace, your patience with us. But we thank you, Holy Spirit, for the strength that you are in us that we can walk in a way that glorifies you, that we can experience victory over addiction and sin and selfishness. Holy Spirit, this morning, be here with us. Open up our hearts and our minds to know you intellectually, um, but also know you emotionally, that, that you would grab our hearts and pull us to you. Because when you have our hearts, then you have our minds as well. You have all of us. So grab our hearts, glorify yourself, and if there's anything we need to do in response to your word this morning, I pray that we would be faithful doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving ourselves. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you were here last week or if you got a uh, kind of a little card saying what we're going through, we are in a, on our second week of three-week series, Is God Real? And last week, we answered that question, yep, he's real, and you're not him. And that was kind of the, the whole thrust of last week. There is a God, and he has put eternity in our hearts, meaning we have an understanding of eternity, uh, that there's something beyond this, and we have a desire for that, a desire to worship. And Paul says that just through creation, we can know enough, looking at creation, that there is a God. And so there is a God, and we're not him, but if that's true... What is he like and what does he want from us? And so that's what we're going to look at this week. Is God real? We already answered that, yes. So we're not going to be doing a lot of apologetics, as in proofs that God is real. But today we want to look at, if somebody has a stirring that there's something more, what details do they need? What details do they need? And then what do they need to do in response? And we're going to be seeing how Paul dealt with that. You know, again, last week we saw Solomon as he was writing about 
his life in, in Ecclesiastes, kind of a depressing book where he says all is vanity. He strived for all these different things to fulfill him and he found fulfillment in nothing but God alone. And it's the same for us. And so that was applicable and this is applicable. If we're seeking for fulfillment in anything other than God, we will end up still thirsty, still hungry. And so today we're gonna learn uh, not just what we need to know about God, but what we do in response and this is also going to be helpful for those of us who want to know how to share with somebody else. Maybe you have a coworker. I remember when I was in high school, I had somebody ask me, it was a fellow athlete, said, how do you know there's a God? And I went, uh, 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 you know, he wanted to know what God was like. And I, I could tell him, but I just stumbled and I was too scared and it didn't come out well. And I had a friend just in the last couple of weeks that said, a coworker asked them, what's God like? How, how would you answer that? Paul answers that. He basically has people coming to him going, what's God like? And here's how Paul answers. And so look at the words that he says, but also pay attention to how he does it because I think we learn a lot from that. So we're gonna be in Acts. Acts chapter 17. Acts is uh, near the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. Um, it's gonna be on page 1026, 1026. So if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the seat in front of you uh, under the little box. Grab that and turn to page 1026. But here's, here's the context. Here's what Paul is doing. If you're familiar with Paul at all, Paul was a great missionary. Paul had a passion for the gospel of Christ. He was, uh, he was a Pharisee. He was one of those that was involved in arresting and killing Christians, and then Jesus grabbed him. He's on the road going to arrest Christians. Jesus appears to him, blinds him, saves him, takes him from as far away from God as you can be really to his most faithful missionary possibly ever. And so here's Paul on his second missionary journey. The year is about AD 50. So we're about 20 years after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus has been gone about 20 years, and he's traveling around. He has a, a few traveling compa companions going with him, Timothy and, and Silas, guys that he brought to Christ, or at least that he considered uh, he was their spiritual father. So he was teaching them, and they were going with him, and, and they had gone to Thessalonica. We have a map here just kind of to show where they're going, because it is important. Thessalonica, and then Berea is where they were. And if you see that, it's on the far left. That's Berea. And so this is where they went before, and maybe you've heard of Berean Bible Chapel. There's a bunch of them all over the country, Berea. Because Berea were, was a place where Paul went, and he met with the Jews there, and the Jews studied their scriptures, their Old Testament Bible, the Old Testament. They studied and saw everything Paul said was true. The Old Testament all points to Jesus, and so many there were saved. Right after that, Paul goes down to Athens. If you see where Athens is, maybe you're familiar with Athens, Greece. But he goes there for, it's a little bit different. All the other places he went, as you read through Acts, he goes there intentionally, he's going to start a church. That's his goal. He never starts a church in Athens. It's a little bit different. And it looks like he was going there just to, to wait. Um, he goes there and, he, and he, we don't know what his plans were, but God stirs him. And I think this is gonna be interesting to see. But I wanna set the scene a little bit in Athens. So Athens was kind of the, the cultural hotspot of the day. It was the religious center. If you see where it is on the Mediterranean Sea, it was one of those spots where people would travel and go through. And so it was a, a pluralistic society. Does that sound familiar? Kind of like us. So the idea that you can believe what you want to believe and I can believe and maybe we can both be right, that was Athens. Athens had, uh, a poet once wrote about Athens that it's easier to find a God in Athens than a man. 
because they had idols everywhere. They had temples everywhere. And so what they would do is they would, this was kind of a, an intellectual city. It was kind of like uh, the Berkeley or the Harvard of the, the known world at that time. And so that was the place, maybe you've heard of Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. They were all in Athens. They'd all been dead for a while, but they were all in Athens. And so Athens was a little bit different than everywhere else. It wasn't a Jewish area that was very religious that way, as in there's one God, Yahweh. It wasn't like Rome, who was very uh, superstitious, you know, and all these gods, Mars and all that. It was kind of in the middle, and, and they were transitioning from really the superstition of the old way to more like our Western thought right now of reason and intellect. And so in Athens, reason and intellect was important. Philosophy was important, but religion was also important. They still believed in all these gods, and they worshiped them. And so here's Athens, and that's, that's kind of the scene. Um, it wasn't a big city anymore. Probably about 10,000 people lived there. Um, but it was people who were, in generally, intellectual. And they would get together, they would talk, they would philosophize. They wanted to hear what was new so that they could add it to their beliefs. Does that sound familiar? But we're going to see how Paul, and I think this is very applicable to us, we're going to see how Paul handles this pluralistic society. Um, look with me, if you would, at, we're going to start in Acts 17, just verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, see, that was his goal, waiting, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. How does a sold-out Jesus follower respond in a pluralistic society like this? Irritated. Look at Paul. He goes there to wait for Timothy and Silas, but he can't. Here's the picture I see, and he's going to get a little R&R. He goes to Athens. He sits down. He's like, what is that temple? There's the Parthenon. Maybe you've heard of the Parthenon. That was the temple to Athena. People would travel to see the Parthenon. There was uh, other temples to unknown gods. All these, And so he's sitting there, and he just gets irritated with what's going on, and he can't remain silent. So he is disturbed. Uh, his spirit was provoked within him. So what did he do? He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace. Um, other translations call those devout persons God-fearing Gentiles. Those were not Jews. They were Gentiles who believed in the Jewish God, Yahweh, and worshiped in a synagogue. So he would go there, tell them about Jesus. Then he would go to Starbucks, tell anybody there he could about Jesus. That's what he was doing. He was speaking to anybody that he could come in contact with. Um, Look at verse 18, if I can find it. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. So Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, I did a lot of study on this, and I'm going to save you all of that boring information. But it's interesting <laughs> because these are very different branches of philosophy. Both started about 300 years before this, but the Stoics, have you ever heard that, that word? Well, they're very Stoic. The Stoics were, that was them. They, they were reasonable. Um, they were, uh, they weren't just pantheists. They were, or they were pantheists. They believed that God was in everything. They believed in the gods, but they also believed God was kind of in everything. And so they tried to control themselves and, and be 
control. The, the Epicureans were a little bit different. They thought pleasure was the end goal, but not, not like a hedonistic do whatever you want pleasure. It was more of a pleasure of understand everything and have control of your mind, your body, and so then pleasure will, will free you to enjoy life. And so for them, they wanted to understand as much as they could. They also believed in the gods, but they believed they were distant. They believed they were, they were kind of there, but not really involved, didn't really care. So this was these, these two branches of philosophy. And they said, what does this babbler wish to say? That, that word is kind of interesting. Babbler, it means a, a bird picking up seeds. That's what that word means. So he, they thought he was like a bird just picking up a seed here, a seed here, a seed here, and then sharing it as if it was his own thing. And so his Christian doctrine, what he was teaching about Jesus and the resurrection, they're like, oh, that Jesus, that sounds kind of like Zeus. And uh, this, this resurrection, that sounds a little bit like this. And so they said he, he's just grabbing this stuff and then putting it off as his own. And this word really intends that they, they didn't respect what he was saying. They thought he didn't even understand what he was saying. This was a babbler. Uh, and I think this is somewhat interesting because if you have studied it all in a secular school, maybe took a, a class on religion, this is what they'll say about Christianity. This is what they still teach about Christianity is that it, it morphed over time. They took a piece of this religion and a piece of that religion, and it just kind of over time became what we now call doctrine, what we now call Christianity, what we now call the Bible. And so it was kind of similar to now. But Jesus, I'm sorry, Paul, he sees this, he's stern in his heart, and he starts to share. What is his topic? If somebody is curious about God, if, if somebody needs to know the answers, what is our topic? I think it lays it out very clearly here. Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. The main point was Jesus. The center of our message is Jesus and the resurrection. There's a lot there. You can't have Jesus without the resurrection. Paul said, if you're going to deny the resurrection, deny it all because none of it's true. You cannot, you know, I've heard people say that, well, I can accept most of the Bible, just not that whole resurrection part. Well, if Jesus, if Jesus wasn't raised from, from the dead, that means you and I have no hope of being raised from the dead. We're hosed. I'd use a different word, but there's, we're hosed. And so we have to believe and teach Jesus and the resurrection. Now, Paul here is going to be invited up to the Areopagus, where he's going to speak uh, to this intellectual group, uh, and he's going to touch on, you know, both the Stoics and the Epicureans and the others, that God is similar to what they thought, but not exactly the same. Look at verse 22, because what happens is Paul gets invited to the Areopagus. Uh, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. The Areopagus was the place. This is the, the sermon called Mars Hill. Maybe you've heard that. Mars Hill. Mars is Ares. He is the god of war. Areopagus. This was the place in Athens where they did nothing but listen to something new. They wanted to add it to their pantheon. And so they hear Paul walking around, talking and, and teaching, and they had to take him to the Areopagus because that was the place where they would hear and then judge. They would listen to what he had to say, and they would go, that sounds okay. We'll add it in. Or they would hear and go, that, no, we're not going for that. You can't teach anymore in Athens. Get out. And so that's what's happening. He's kind of on trial. He's given a chance to speak and to share. And so here he is, and he's going to speak on first, uh, 
What is God like? And then what is our response? So the essence of God, what is God like? And then what does he want from us in response? Look at verse 23. Or, sorry, 22. He says, this is how he begins. I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 23, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He begins by saying, I see that you're very religious. That word means fear of spirits, or very literally, fear of demons. He says, I see that you're religious. It's not, some would say this is a great compliment. It's really not. It's just a statement of fact. He's finding some common ground. You're very religious. You fear the demons. You fear the spiritual realm because you're, you want to hear what's going on, and then you'll set up an altar because maybe this is real and we need that too. And so they have an altar to an unknown God because they're ignorant. They don't know. They don't have all the answers and they want them. And so they have this altar to an unknown God going, there's stuff we don't understand. And so far, nothing is doing it for us. You know, kind of like Solomon in Ecclesiastes. I haven't figured it out yet. They hadn't found what was going to fulfill yet. So they had this altar to an unknown God going, maybe it's out there. Maybe that's it. And so we'll sacrifice to this unknown God and, and he'll bless us. And so Paul, he finds some, some common ground with his listeners. And I think this is helpful for us. So now let's learn from Paul how we share. Paul begins by finding some common ground with those that he's going to share with. And he points to this altar to an unknown God. I mean, how perfect is that? An altar to an unknown God, what you worship in ignorance, literally, I'm going to share with you. I'm going to give you the truth. Here, here's the point I want us to pull from this. If you are a Christian and you love the Lord, if you're like Paul and you're in a city that has 90 3% unchurched. I hope your, your heart is stirred because of who God is. This is Paul looking at the grace of God in Jesus. He knew he was a sinner. He was murdering Christians. And God appears to him, forgives him by Jesus' blood on the cross, and then brings him in to his family. So Paul is sold out for us. We're sold out to Christ. We look at the pain and suffering that goes on because people look for fulfillment in anything other than God. Are we stirred? And if so, then how do we speak? Paul first finds common ground, and he, he wants to get their head nodding. Is, we're going to see this as he starts. He wants to get them doing this a little bit. And by the way, that's one of those things that they teach you in public speaking. You want to get people nodding in the first five minutes, because if so, then they'll listen to the rest of what you have to say. So find something and make them start doing this. Well, that's what Paul does. There's, there's certain branches, there's certain ways of evangelism I've seen with Christians that are the opposite. I had a friend once give me a DVD. He said, you need to watch this. And it was, the title of it was, How to Answer the Fool. How to do street evangelism, find strangers, and talk about Jesus. And on the front, there was a picture of a guy looking angry and yelling. And I'm like, I'm not even gonna watch this. Because I can tell you right now, looking at this, this is not the heart of Jesus. I'm not gonna go to somebody on the street and go, you're a fool, and I'm really smart, and I'm gonna show you why you're a fool and, and prove to you that's not the heart of Christ at all. He wants us to share with love. And so I think that's one of the important things we learned from Paul is how to share with love. But then look at what he says at the end of that verse. Uh, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul boldly claims to know what they do not Here's the other side of that, and he's going to get into this. He boldly claims to know what they don't. 
How often do you start a conversation like this, or I've heard it, well, I believe this, or the Bible teaches, and so I think this, and we say it in such a gentle way because we don't want to be, we don't want people to feel wrong. I mean, that's our society right now. It's very pluralistic. Don't tell me what I believe is wrong. And so, and I'm guilty of this, of starting, well, here's what I believe, rather than, well, here's the truth, because the Bible is the truth, and we can be confident to share the truth in love, in gentleness, but we can be bold. I think we, we cut the legs out of the gospel when we express it in a way that makes them think that they can just add that into what they believe, or that that's okay and what they believe is okay. So there's a way to share it where they go, okay, this is true, without, again, knocking them to the ground yet. Look at verse 24. First, he's going to talk about the nature of God. The God, this unknown God, I'm going to tell you about him. The God who made the world and everything in it. Being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So here he begins with the nature of God. What is God like? Look at this. Just look at verse 24. The God, that's what he says, not a God. He actually uses a definite article here. The God. This unknown God, by the way, he's not just another. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Here in Athens, they would have had many different ideas of how the world came into being. Um, or how life came into being. One of those was that uh, the gods had a war and one god was killed and his blood fell to the ground and the drops turned into humans. That was one. <laughs> so there was all these different ideas of how things came about. And Paul wants to lay all that to rest. He wants to make this clear. The God made everything you see, the heavens and the earth. By heavens, he's talking planets, stars, you know, sky, clouds, or everything you see, he made it. That's kind of a key. That's one of those things we need to understand. It wasn't that, God, that the world existed forever and ever. It began, God made it. The God. And it says he is transcendent. That's what he's communicating here. He is transcendent. If he made everything, he is beyond everything. He says he doesn't live in temples made with hands. He isn't like what you think, Athenians. He's not like one of you or less than you or, you know, their gods had all these problems. He is transcendent far beyond, but he also says he's Lord. The God who made the heavens and the earth is Lord. That then takes him from there and puts him down here and makes him imminent. That's the word used. So he's transcendent beyond us, but imminent among us. As he's saying this, the Stoics and the Epicureans are both doing this. <laughs> he's saying something that both of them agree with and the other one that makes them go, it's been said that this is the, uh, the best speech ever given. So I'll be honest, it's intimidating to try and communicate what Paul's trying to do here. He does it so well. But here's what God is like. He is out there. He made everything, but yet he's among us. He's Lord. He's Lord of what he has made. Their gods were fallible. Their gods could die. Their gods would, would war. Their gods were needy. And he wants to speak to this because in the, the ancient world, 
all the Near Eastern religions, they, they had these ideas that if they did certain things, it would manipulate the gods to do certain things. So maybe you know some of the rituals. Harvest season or, or planting season, they wanted to have a good crop, so they would have all these rituals that were awful because they thought if they performed these acts, the gods would look and they'd go like, hey, we should do that too. They perform these acts, and, and the result of those acts is fertile soil, things grow. And so they would try and manipulate the gods. They would build these temples so that the God would dwell with them. And Paul is saying, God doesn't need anything from you. That's his big point here that they needed to understand. God doesn't need you at all. And I think that's helpful for us. Although he created everything, he created us to love him. He doesn't need our love. He's blessed by our love, but he created us so he could love us. He doesn't need anything from you or me. That removes a lot of this religion that we do, a lot of these legalism that, that can take place in our life. God is transcendent yet imminent, the creator and the sustainer. It says he keeps everything moving. Um, he made, where does it say that? Um, Nor is he served as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So not only did he create See, the Epicureans would think maybe there was some creation, but now the gods are distant. He's saying, no, he is sustaining everything right now. The breath you are taking right now, that is him sustaining that breath. He's allowing the air to be here. So he is intimately involved in our lives right here and right now. And then he, he shares this, and this is a big thing that we need to understand. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You know, Paul goes back to the Genesis account here. Here's side note. You notice he's not quoting a lot of Old Testament. These are Athenians. They, they didn't care about the Old Testament scriptures like, like the Jews would. When Paul would go talk to the Jews, he would use their scriptures and lay it out, but not here. Here he uses what they would know. He even quotes their poets. But he says here that God is sovereign. God is completely sovereign. This is what they needed to understand. God had control over everything. Their gods were not sovereign. Their gods could be swayed, manipulated, die, cast out, all these things. Our God, the God, the unknown God for them, the one God is sovereign. He has control over everything. Do you know that? Do you know that he has allotted, it says the, the times, He's decided where people would live and when. I mean, some of this, I mean, this gets into a realm that can get confusing and, and, and sometimes there can be debate on this, but he is in complete control. You live in Carson City right now because God decided you should live in Carson City right now. You're here at Common Ground today because God decided you should be here today. And tomorrow you're gonna be somewhere else because God decided you should be there. I have to say this doesn't remove our responsibility or our free will, but God is completely sovereign. Transcendent, yet imminent. Sovereign, completely in control. And then he says this in verse 26, or in verse 27. Let me go back to 26, we get the context. He made from one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why did he do this? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. 
yet he is actually not far from each one of us. He made us with eternity in our hearts. Does that sound a little bit like Ecclesiastes? He made man to search after him. Just read the history books. Every society, every culture, everywhere, people have sought after God. But the way he phrases it, gropes as if in darkness. The picture is of them in all the lights are out and people are doing this and maybe some might find God. It, 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 I struggle with the way that phrases it a little bit because it's like, oh, God's not in control, but he, he already said he is. He is sovereign. He's put it in us to seek after him. And I think that's an, I know, that's a very important thing about our Christian life is to seek after God. Anybody who seeks after God truly will find him. And so he puts in here, if you grope and look and find you, you will find. What did Jesus say? He made a statement. He said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. So this, this idea of man apart from God groping in the darkness, as soon as Jesus enters, the light comes on. We're not perfect, but we can now start to understand. He illumines scripture to understand what's going on. Look at verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art of imagination of man. So now Paul kind of brings it into them. Some of your poets have said we're God's children. He's quoting them. He, notice he doesn't quote the Old Testament. He quotes Barry Manilow or whoever. He, he quotes one of their poets, one of their philosophers. And he does this several times throughout this. He's finding common ground with them that they can understand. He said, but if we're God's children, as you guys believe we're God's children, if we are, why do you worship rock and stone? It doesn't make sense. You're worshiping these things that you made out of your creative ability. He said, if we're God's children, we are more like God than we are like these things. I mean, think about it. You have your kids, and some of you, many of you, and they're oddly like you sometimes, aren't they? <laughs> oddly. I'm looking at the mansers there. Yikes. <laughs> but when we have children, they're, they're like us. In many ways, they're like us. Again, this is really fun, all the kids looking at mom and dad. <laughs> but it's the same. If, if we are God's children then we must be similar to God. And we are. The Bible teaches we are made in God's image. We have intellect. We have free will. We have the ability to love. We are in his image. If that's the case, then it makes no sense to go make a golden calf and go, this is the God, worship it. But yet societies have done this for generations, forever, thousands and thousands of years. Paul is speaking reasonably. But I think it's important here. He doesn't debate their worldview. Do you get that? He doesn't, he doesn't get in and prove all the ways they're wrong. All he's doing is revealing God. This is really helpful to me. Because for me, I want to take the idea of, of atheism or evolution. And I've read the books. I'm no scientist, but I've read the books. And I can talk about evolution. I can talk about the eye, whatever. But that rarely is ever going to win anybody to prove them that, that their belief is wrong because evolution isn't true or whatever. That's not what Paul does. Instead, what Paul does is lifts up God and says, look at him, and sometimes shares him in contrast to what they believe. You know, he is not like idols at all, because he made us. 
I've heard that uh, counterfeiters or counterfeit FBI agents or whatever, the ones looking for counterfeit, they don't study all the counterfeits. Instead, their job is to study the real thing and study it, study it, study it, so that when they see a counterfeit, they recognize it. I think it's a similar way. We want to hold up Jesus, and as people look at him, they recognize the truth of him rather than just attacking their beliefs. I hope this is helpful. It's helpful to me. But Paul is reasoning with him, and now he gets to the responsibility of man. This is what God is like. He created everything. He's involved with everything. He doesn't need you, but he loves you, and he's here with you. Now, what's your job? Now, what do we do in response? And this is what he gets to in verse 30. And here he, he talks about the S word. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God has overlooked. Paul, man, expert speech. <laughs> he takes his hook at the beginning. The unknown God, which you worship in ignorance, God has allowed for a while. Now he comes back to that same word. God overlooked ignorance before. He's overlooked ignorance for thousands and thousands of years, but that time is past. He says it's no longer okay for you to worship an unknown God. Now he has revealed himself. This is so beautiful. This gives me chills. Read the Bible. All of history from creation to Jesus, it all points forward to Jesus. The way I put it in my notes is I just put a cross and I put an arrow that pointed to it from all past pointing to it. And then I put an arrow on the other side, all pointing back. We are now on this side of the cross. Everything now points back to the cross, to what Jesus did on the cross. Everything before pointed forward and God overlooked sin. He passed over it for a while. It doesn't mean all those people were saved going to heaven but it does mean they didn't receive the judgment, the condemnation at that time for their sin. But then the cross came because sin requires a payment. Without the shedding of blood, the Bible says, there's no forgiveness of sins. The Bible also says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So all this sin took place from Adam to Jesus and God overlooked it. He didn't judge it. He gave them the sacrificial system, which pointed to Jesus because they would kill a goat. We've talked about this some before, but the way they would do this is, okay, or it was a lamb. For my sin, I go, I take this beautiful little cozy lamb, and I pull its head up, and I slit its throat, and it bleeds out, and that covers my sin. That was what the Jews would do before, you know, from the time of Moses, the law, now to the cross. God overlooked it, but God had to judge sin because God is loving God is also just. We're going to hear that nowadays. You start sharing with people about judgment and hell. Say, I can't believe in a God like that. God won't send anybody to hell. God's too lo I, want, I want a God that's loving. Well, guess what? You don't get to decide what God is like. God is who he is. And he is loving, but he's also just. You know, we wouldn't be okay if a murderer went to a judge, was found guilty, and the judge was like, eh, you can go. Right? We'd cry foul. We wouldn't stand for that, especially in this country. We wouldn't stand for that. God is just. He's perfectly just. And so he judged sin on his son. That's where the love part comes in. God had to judge sin, but yet he loves us so much, he didn't want us to, to experience that judgment on us. So he became a man in the form of Jesus, took our penalty on the sin, and he judged it on that dark day that we celebrate as Good Friday. He judged sin, boom, judged it on Jesus, and we have no idea really what happened that day. 
We know he was beat. We know he suffered. We know he bled. We know he was crucified. But on that cross, Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't know what happened spiritually there. But there, something severe happened on Jesus because God judged all sin on him. One of the things we did Good Friday in here, it was awesome, was we walked around to these stations. One of the things we did was there was a beam over here where we got to lift the cross, and it was really heavy. And the idea was to hold it and feel the weight of our sin all went on Jesus on the cross, and it was heavy. The weight, I mean, it just a crushing blow. So God judged sin on the cross. Now, Paul is 20 years later. Paul is after that, and he says the time has passed for God to overlook sin. Now, he's judged it, and you can have forgiveness. You can have the benefits of that judgment, or you can take the judgment on yourself. And so what do we do in response? And so Paul immediately goes to that. He doesn't overlook sin. How often do we want to shy over sin? The S word. But we have to deal with sin because that's what separated us from God. And so this is what he says. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. This is what they do in response. Repent. Remember Peter taught the sermon at Pentecost after they received the Holy Spirit and all the people said, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Jesus, his first sermon in Mark 1.13 when he began his ministry right after he was baptized and he started walking around, what was Jesus' first message? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, it means turn. It means to make a 180 degree turn. It means change allegiances. Here's what it means. It means you're on the battlefield Okay, two armies battling, and you leave this one and join this one. That's repentance. And he cries out, repent, turn. What he's saying, all these idols that you have going on right here, you have to turn from all of those. You have to repent. You can't take Jesus, I know this is Paul's heart, you can't take Jesus and add him into your pantheon. You can't go take that sign that says, to an unknown God, and go take that down and just put Jesus up there. He said, if you want to follow Jesus, you need to tear all those down, at least in your own heart and make Jesus the supreme God. God is preeminent. Repent. Men and women must repent. They must turn from sin and allow Jesus to be in control. We might use the word converted. And I think this is helpful because Peter, when he was in Jerusalem and he taught this message, basically, and they said, what should we do? He said, repent and be baptized. He says, repent and be converted. You need to be brought into the fold of the church. You need to expose yourself as a Christian to the world around you. The Jews understood baptism because a baptism would set them apart from all the other Jews and go, we're now part of this, we're different. He's telling them to do the same thing in their context. Repent, turn from all this and turn to God alone. Be converted. Here's the thing for us. Listen, you can't take Jesus and add him in. You can't say Jesus is a way and the other's way is too. I've had that conversation over and over with people and they're like, yeah, great, Jesus is a way. no. Jesus is the way. That's why he says repent. He is the only way. And listen, when you are speaking to people about Jesus in love, you gotta tell them. You gotta tell them there's only way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus said. In Acts 4.12, there's one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That name is Jesus, one way. That has to be part of our message. Sin caused separation. Jesus paid for it. Now we repent, 
believe, follow him. That is how we do it. That is our response. And we have to teach that. We have to share that in gentleness, in love. And that's where the, that's where the rub kind of comes in, is how can you share it in love? But they must know judgment is coming, because that's what he goes to next. Verse 31, because he has fixed a day. Remember, he's sovereign. He's fixed a day. He's fixed where you'll live and where you'll move to and all this stuff. He's also fixed a day when God will judge the world in righteousness. That means he's going to judge it perfectly. He knows your heart. You can deceive me. I can deceive you. You can't deceive Jesus. He's going to judge perfectly. And it proved, God proved, Jesus proved that he is the forgiveness for sins. He is the way by rising from the dead, the resurrection the resurrection is always part of our message. It was part of Paul's. A correct understanding of the person and work of Jesus is necessary. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus died. Jesus rose again. The resurrection. You cannot deny the resurrection and think that you have salvation. And you cannot leave it out because it's a hard doctrine. Jesus rose from the dead. Now, look at the responses real quick. That's the message. There it is. If you're going to share, there it is. Share that with love. Share it with grace. Share it with truth. But then here's the responses. Verse 33. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Uh, other translations say sneered. The resurrection of the dead. The, here's the thing with in Athens. And in that line of thinking, they thought that the body was corrupt and they thought the best way to exist was purely spiritually. And so when you die and your spirit is free from your body, then you're free. And so resurrection from the dead, there was poets at that time that said the, the doctrine of the resurrection is the doctrine of swine. So for them, that was disgusting to be resurrected. And so some sneered, they mocked. They said, this is a bunch of bullarchy. No way, they walked away. Others said, we will hear you again about this. We will hear you again about this. These are the people that hear and they go, huh, maybe. Let's talk tomorrow. Then you meet with them tomorrow. Let's talk the next day. Maybe you've had these conversations. The person that just really likes to debate and talk and, and you know, this is what they did in Athens. Here's something new, debate it, talk about it. And that's great. But at some point, enough's enough. Or, I don't want to say that. That sounds mean. Um, but at some point, you put your attention elsewhere. That's what Paul did. Some sneered. Some said, we'll hear you again. Verse 33, so Paul went out from their midst. He left. But some men joined him and believed, among whom are also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. You know, see, names are specific. Some said, yes, we're in. And they were converted. They went with him. They followed. They didn't just go, that's good. They, gave, they followed. They were converted. So these are the three responses, and you can expect these three responses. If you're scared of the first one, it's going to make you shut your mouth and not ever share. Paul wasn't afraid of rejection. He knew he was going to get rejected. Guess what? If you go share Christ, you're going to get rejected. People are going to call you stupid. People are going to call you ignorant. It's going to happen if you're going to share. Some will go, okay, let's get coffee tomorrow and talk again. By all means, get coffee and talk again. But we're looking for the people there's a book I read recently, he called them the red apples, the ones ready to be picked. The ones who God has already worked on them. Trouble is maybe in their life. They know there's something there. They just need the, the truth. They need the details. 
and then they need the gospel and invited to join. And they'll go, that's what I need, I'm in. Those are the people we're looking for. Those are the people that we want to share with who will join up, who will repent and follow Jesus. What's our application of this? There's the application, first of all, of us being like Paul in, in the way we share. But here's the other application. Do you have idols in your life? If you're here and you have not given your life to Jesus, of course, you gotta get rid of anything else and Jesus alone, bow the knee to him, repent, be converted, be baptized, turn and follow him. Here's the unfortunate thing about us in the flesh. When we give our lives to Christ, we're not perfect immediately. <laughs> I mean, are some of you? Maybe. We're justified, we're right with God, we're accepted because of Jesus, but we're not perfect. Now we go through a process called sanctification where we become more like Jesus, less of me, more of him. And we can still struggle with idols. We can still struggle with things and Jesus. And so I want us to take a minute and think, what is it? And we talked about this actually last week some. What are those things in your life that take precedence before Jesus or maybe are equal with Jesus? Is it a hobby? Is it a pet sin? What is it? Let me, let me pray. And we'll talk a little bit more about this. Lord Jesus Christ, um, I thank you for the clarity that comes in your word. I thank you that we can know a few things about the Father. We can know that, God, you are sovereign. We know you created everything. We know you placed eternity in our hearts. We know that you judge sin on your son on the cross. And we thank you so much for that. And our hearts break as Paul, when we are exposed to, to people who have so much going on, they can't even see you, it breaks our hearts. And God, things in my own life that take joy away from you breaks my heart. Sin in my life breaks my heart. The idols in our lives get in the way. And God, we want you to expose those idols to us and remove them, please. Show us in the areas, show us where we are not lining up with you. And help us to repent and do what you would have us do. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.